Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we are very happy to welcome Thomas Irwin back to the show. Thomas, I know you are a Young Voices contributor, but you wear a number of other hats as well. Tell our listener just a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, Brian, I thank you for having me back. I appreciate the chance to be on the show again. Um, So I live in uh, Los Angeles, specifically the east side of Los Angeles. Uh, I work there for a faith-based nonprofit doing just general economic development work. So trying to help people uh, get in better jobs through job training, helping people start small businesses. Um, And also one of the things I've um, come to do in recent years is try to advocate uh, around systemic policy issues around economic policy, right? So you can help an individual get a better job, but if there's economic policy, a bad economic policy at the state and local level, they're holding them back. Um, there's limits to how much you can do in terms of economic development. Um, so that's a big part of what I do here in, in L.A. Now, it seems, Thomas, the last time we talked, we discussed uh, some of the housing difficulties that uh, are faced by large metropolitan areas like, for instance, Los Angeles. And I'm looking at an article you wrote for Counterpunch here about the case against parking minimums. And I have to admit, I hadn't really thought about this before. For, pe- for people who aren't familiar with parking minimums, what is that, what exactly does that mean? That's a great question, Brian. Um, I mean, parking minimums are, are maybe the most kind of under the radar uh, policy in in economic policy in general, right? Because we just kind of take for granted, a lot of us, that when we drive places, there'll be parking um, at the end of our journey, right? When we go to the store, when we go to the restaurant. Um, I'm not anti-car. I'm not anti-parking. Um, obviously, parking can be a really convenient thing for consumers. Uh, but it's really important to distinguish between parking and parking minimums. So parking minimums are things... Uh, part of the municipal planning code that most cities have. And so what parking minimums do is they say, if you're a developer, a housing developer, if you're a store, if you're a church, um, you could be any kind of organization, uh, we're going to try to estimate how much parking you need uh, for people who visit your establishment. So it's, it's essentially a form of central planning where the, the planner decides for the developer, for the uh, restaurant, whoever it might be, how much parking do you need? As opposed to maybe letting the market decide, right, or letting the individual business figure out, hey, how much parking, how much parking does my uh, consumer base actually desire, right? Um, and a lot of people think that the free parking at a restaurant, the free parking at your um, apartment complex is free. But when you actually dig into it, you start to discover, actually, this comes at a really high cost uh, to consumers. Um, so it's a really important policy to understand what the trade-offs are, because those trade-offs directly impact uh, the cost of living for people in every city in America. Now that I hear you describe this, I suddenly realize parking is one of my bigger stresses. When I, especially when I go to a city, finding parking, it's always going to cost you money and finding a decent parking place where you feel safe. And um, and, and for that matter, um, patronizing a business, a restaurant or something, if they have inadequate parking, I'll often choose to go somewhere else just because I don't want the hassle of, you know, driving around the block, waiting for a space to open up. But in housing, especially, this is what blew me away in your article. It sounds like um the planners right now are putting a greater priority on where can we put all the cars as opposed to where can we house people? Help us understand why, why this is, is contributing to a crisis. Yeah. And I think what you get at there, Brian, is really important to understand. So I think it's, it's important. Again, parking is a genuine convenience for a lot of people. Um, it's really useful to be able to park when you go to a restaurant. It's really useful to be able to park when you get home from a long day's work. Um, but Whenever you talk about economic policy, you have to understand the trade-offs, right? That is the most important thing to think about when you think about economic policy. And as you say, um, when you talk about parking, parking requires land, 
right? And land is expensive, especially in Los Angeles right now. Um, you can say this about pretty much any big city in America. Land is one of the most valuable resources when you talk about an urban environment. So land that's dedicated to parking means less land that's dedicated to housing, um, less land that's dedicated to businesses that can serve consumers um, in the in the city. Um, and if I'm sure many of your uh, listeners know, right, in California right now, we have a huge housing crisis and we have a huge homelessness crisis, right, where we just don't have enough supply for homes. And when you dig into it, you start to realize, oh, this is actually uh, parking is one of the biggest reasons why that is. Right. So if you look at a new development, if you require um, a parking space, just one parking space per unit, that increases the cost of that development by about fifty five thousand dollars. Um, an upfront cost for the developer. And that gets priced into your rent. So we're talking, depending on the uh, where you are and how expensive that land is, it could be anywhere from $100 to $300 a month. And $300 a month for someone who's working class, um, someone who's working to make ends meet, living paycheck to paycheck, that's a big deal, right? Uh, if you can reduce the cost of your housing by $300 a month, a lot of people would jump at that opportunity. And, and what's really perverse about this is if you look at who drives, the lowest income people tend to drive the least. Because cars are expensive, right? You have to own insurance. You have to um, make your car payments, pay for gas. Um, so it actually, in a lot of ways, is a tax that falls heaviest on the poor, um, who often don't own cars, right? But they're still required to live in apartment buildings that supply a parking space that will often sit vacant. Um, so if, when you're talking about how do you actually bring down the cost of housing, um, it's not saying that every developer shouldn't um, include parking. It's just saying, hey, if you're a developer who thinks you can sell these units, rent these units to people who don't want the parking, let that developer make that choice on their own. So that's essentially the case against parking minimums, right? It's, it's let's trust the market to provide the housing that people actually want at prices that actually make sense for them. Man, I want to make sure I understood you correctly, too. Every parking space in a new building is $55,000. Yes. Wow. You are correct. Wow, that's that is so much more than I ever would have considered. And I guess it's just one of those yeah. things you don't think about it until you know until you're trying to secure a place to live. And wow, why is the rent so much more? Yeah, and and, and Brian, it, it is actually more expensive than that if you look at, for instance, like a downtown area in Los Angeles, because often the parking there is a, is built in an underground garage, right? So not only are you talking about the lands that it costs, right? Tunneling, right? You, you're having to dig out, right? So you can talk about parking spaces that can get up to $100,000 per parking spot. Um, so you're, this is not a minor cost. Um, this is a significant cost on developers, which gets passed on to consumers in the, in the cost of rent. Now, this is something that you mentioned in the article you and your family actually have faced in that uh, you were actually living in a place where you had more parking spaces because of you, you had two spaces for your apartment, but you didn't need both of them. So what did you do? Yeah, so that's that's it is something that I've faced in my own kind of experience here. So my wife and I, when we got married, we actually decided to go down to one car because my wife was able to take public transit. We lived in a, a dense part of East L.A., um, just across the river from downtown L.A. My wife worked downtown and she realized it was actually more convenient to her to take the bus to downtown. Um, so she, we decided to sell our second car and go down to one car. And we lived in that uh, apartment that you're referencing for almost a year and a half with one car. Well, this apartment came with two parking spots, right? Um, and because of security, our um, our landlord would not let us do anything else with the parking spot, right? We couldn't rent it out to a neighbor who maybe um, would, would find it more useful. We couldn't rent it out to someone else in some one of the other apartments in that complex. So it's essentially, you know, vacant, um, unused land, right? So there's a cost to me, right? I was paying rent for that space um, that I didn't want, right? I, I would have chosen to not have that parking um, space if I could have. Um, and it's a cost to the city, right? Because that land can't get used for housing someone, for um, 
a business. It can't even go for parking a, someone who actually has a car that they need to park. Um, so in a lot of ways, I, I consider that experience kind of going to McDonald's, right? And if they required you to buy a combo meal and get fries and a drink, even if you don't want the fries and the drink, right? Maybe it's nice to have, those are nice things to have, but if I'm not hungry and I don't want fries, right? I'd rather just buy a burger because it's going to be cheaper to me, right? But in that in that apartment situation, right, I didn't have that option. So what if I eventually moved to another place where we don't, our current apartment doesn't have um, parking, right? We have to park on the street, which some would say, hey, that's an inconvenience, right? I don't want that. But for us, it's really valuable because we uh, now have a two-year-old son um, and we, you know, we live on a budget, right? And we like paying less rent, um, even though we, you know, have to work a little harder to find parking, right? That's a choice that we made. And I just want more people in our cities to be able to make that choice for themselves. Well, I got to say, I admire you for putting your money where your mouth is. I mean, a lot of people would just suck it up. Oh, well, so there's an unused parking space in the city. But I mean, that's I think that's noble what you've done. Talk to me about what cities who have actually relaxed their required parking or their uh, parking minimums. What have they seen happen? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, yeah, and it's easy to talk about economic policy in theory, right? There's a lot of economic policies that sound good in theory, but most people want to know, hey, what will this actually do in my city? Um, so, I, I, example, I always use San Diego. San Diego, for me in LA, is a very similar city, right? Southern California. A lot of people own cars in San Diego, drive places. So we're not talking about Manhattan here. We're talking about a city where the majority of people still do use cars. But what the city decided is, hey, in our most walkable neighborhoods. So where there is public transit, places that are close to downtown, we're going to take away the parking minimums. And again, let developers decide uh, what would actually serve the consumers best, right? Is, is including parking, most important is not including parking. And I think what, what's so profound about San Diego is what they actually found was that it led to a, a huge increase in the number of housing units that were constructed. And especially it, it uh, led to an explosion of housing for the poorest people in San Diego. So housing units that were 100% of the housing units were below a threshold considered affordable. Um, and so those units, they increased by the thousands, right, in the terms of the number of units that were produced in the uh, year, right, after that uh, uh policy was produced. Um, and actually, what's, what's interesting is in the last few months, there's been data coming out of Minneapolis. So Minneapolis in 2019 did a similar thing, and they saw similar effects, right? Lots and lots of new housing built for the poorest uh, people in Minneapolis. We are up against the clock here, Thomas, but I appreciate you shining some light on this subject. Tell people where they can find your writing. Where can they follow you on social media? Absolutely. So you can find my writing. So obviously I write for various outlets. My home is on Substack, so you can find me at Thomas Pontifications. Um, you can also find me on Twitter. I'm Coach Thomas LA. I'm a basketball coach in addition to all the other hats I wear here. Um, so you can find me on Twitter there. Uh, I would love to have uh, folks uh, follow me. I, I write a lot about this uh, housing policy and other kind of economic policies that benefit people. So. Welcome back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Jason Reed back to the show. Now, Jason is not just a contributor to Young Voices. Jason, you're, I'm going to give you kind of a field promotion here. You're kind of the grand poobah of sorts. Actually, tell our audience uh, what, what you do with Young Voices. Uh, so I'm Young Voices PR manager and UK lead. That means I'm in charge of overseeing Young Voices UK and overseeing the PR department as well. So that's all of our TV, radio, podcasts, public speaking, 
Um, and so, yeah, I wear a lot of lot of hats within the Young Voices tent and enjoy working with the contributors and, of course, with you, Brian. And, of course, you are a contributor as well. In fact, I'm looking at an article that uh, was published on Yahoo.com. Uh, your turn. Uh, this is bail reform is good for law and order. And now that I think about it, Jason, I have been hearing a lot about bail reform, particularly in reference to New York City. Can you kind of bring us up to speed on what's been happening there and, and why is there need for reform? Well, this is a conversation that's taking place around the country, but you're right, there's certainly been a focus in New York City recently because of uh, Eric Adams talking about it a great deal on the campaign trail. But I think that Eric Adams, along with many people, is uh, is taking the wrong approach. He is bashing bail reform, and I think he's blaming it for something that he's that it doesn't have any connection to, which is to do with rising crime rates. What we mean by bail reform in this case specifically is to do with stopping the overuse of cash bail. So we want to stop the situation where judges are unnecessarily setting very high amounts for cash bail that they know full well uh, the defendants can't pay, especially if they come from a lower socioeconomic background, because that then leads to the situation where you have lots and lots of people behind bars before their trial, um, which costs a huge amount of money for the American taxpayer and is also quite worrying, I think, for liberty and justice because these are people who have not been found guilty of any crime. They've not had a chance yet to plead their case. They've not had their trial yet. In many cases, the charges end up being dropped anyway. And so I don't think it's right that we are detaining people uh, for months and in many cases years at huge cost uh, completely unnecessarily. The, the damage that cash bail causes when it's overused is quite dramatic. Uh, and I think it's something that is getting more attention. But the problem is that Eric Adams keeps linking it to rising crime rates. But that's not what bail's for. Bail has never been to try to prevent crime. In fact, many judges, especially in New York, are actually prevented from using bail in that way, because we don't want judges handing out high bail, uh, setting high bail amounts just because they worry that people are dangerous and they think um, that they can predict when people are going to commit crimes again. Hang on a minute. They haven't been found guilty of the first crime yet. Um, And so I'm very worried about the overuse of cash bail. And I'm I'm delighted that more people, I think, are opening their eyes to this and uh, considering seriously for the first time the idea of bail reform. Jason, I want you to clarify something for me because I want to make sure that I'm understanding correctly. Um, There's cash bail. And and then what's what's the alternative Uh, bond bail bond where you pay a portion of the bond that's that's posted. Um, Can you help help me understand that better? That's true. There are lots of alternatives to cash bail. I think cash bail is uh, the worst of all worlds. There are all kinds of systems you can use. You can have people under house arrest. You can have people with electronic tags on them so that they can't leave a certain area. You can take away their passport. You can have all kinds of different restrictions, some of which are very sensible, um, which don't require taking away someone's liberty and don't require detaining them for months or years on end, uh, especially in cases we're talking primarily here about cases where where it's a very low-level offence. It's a non-violent offence. Of course, we're not talking about letting violent offenders just roam the streets at will. We're talking about the vast majority of these cases um, where it's a very low-level offence, and it really is unnecessary to be putting people behind bars for such a long period of time. There was one particular example a few years ago which triggered a lot of this conversation, especially in New York, which was the, the tragic case of Khalif Browder, who in 2010, he was just 16 years old. And he was arrested uh, in New York. He was accused of stealing somebody's backpack. The judge set his bail at $3,000, which 
He was a child. He couldn't afford to pay that. His family at that point couldn't afford to pay it either. That was an unnecessarily high amount. He spent three years incarcerated, awaiting his trial. He was never convicted. He was presumed innocent. The charges were dropped. Wow. But unsurprisingly, uh, he suffered a great deal because of that. And he actually ended up taking his life a couple of years afterwards, um, having spent three years in what we can only imagine were awful conditions and experiencing a huge amount of trauma, as it turns out, completely unnecessarily. So that's what triggered a lot of the bail reform uh, measures to come in in New York specifically. And now I'm worried that we are apparently rolling back on that. Eric Adams certainly is keen to start rolling back on that because he keeps trying to link it to rising crime rates. I think politicians see bashing bail reform as an easy out. If you want to tackle rising crime rates, you've got to think much more fundamentally about the criminal justice system. Bringing in cash bail is not an easy fix. It is not something that helps the situation. It makes it worse. And it also fuels jail overcrowding. I know politicians like to play to the idea that I'm very tough on crime and, you know, I'm going to make everything better by being tough on crime. But you make a very clear distinction here. Bail reform is not about letting violent dangerous people go free. It's about making sure that that pretrial detention is being used properly where it's actually needed as opposed to just simply lock them up, you know, because that's just the way we do it. That's exactly right. It's undoubtedly true that cash bail has been overused in the last few years in cases where it really is not needed. On any given day, um, it's roughly 445,000 people are incarcerated in jails in America before their trial, according to research from the Prison Policy Initiative. That roughly is two thirds of the entire jail population is people who haven't even had a trial yet. And so it's costing a huge amount of money. It's denying a huge amount of people their liberty. And it's bad for law and order, I would say, as well. There's an interesting new study out quite recently called The Hidden Costs of Pretrial Detention Revisited, which looks into this and how it can actually cause an increased rates of reoffending because it undermines trust in the justice system. If you think about it this way, if you were accused of falsely accused of a crime, um, which we hope, of course, you'd never be in that situation. But if you were in that situation, you would, of course, have the right to a fair trial. And I'm sure you'd be very grateful for that right in that situation. But then you'd be detained, quite likely, for a very long time before you even have a chance to plead your case. The The charges might be dropped or you might be found innocent, but you've had a huge chunk of your life taken away, a huge chunk of your liberty taken away for no good reason, would that, in, would that cause you to trust the justice system more? Would it cause you to have more faith in American criminal justice? Of course not. And so it's unsurprising then that we see higher crime rates afterwards. A lot of that is actually cash bail's fault. And so cash bail is definitely not the solution. So Jason, I have to ask this, uh, besides politicians who are trying to appear tough on crime, where does the support for resisting bail reform come from? Um, does it, for instance, do, do police departments or do district attorneys or, for that matter, corrections officials, uh, do, they, do they push back against bail reform or would they be more supportive? Uh, They don't push back as much as I would like to see it, but I'm afraid it is the politicians who have to carry the majority of the blame for this because it does seem like such an easy fix. And this is an issue where I think, um, quite understandably, a lot of ordinary people don't know the details of it. They don't know about those statistics I've just given you about the number of people who are held before their trial. They don't know about the huge costs. They don't know about how it can fuel reoffending. And so I think if we had higher public awareness 
it would be much harder for politicians like Eric Adams and many others to use bail reform as an easy sort of punching bag for everything to do with criminal justice. And uh, more people would be aware of what actually needs to happen in the criminal justice system, because we all want to live in a safer society. We all want to uphold law and order. Nobody wants to be feeling unsafe or for prime rates to be rising. And so we need to do a, a better job, I think, of holding politicians accountable, holding them to their word and making sure that what they're actually proposing on uh, bail and on criminal justice more broadly does actually help achieve those aims. It's not just a nice headline about we're making it easier for judges to set ludicrously high bail amounts. It's actually something that will achieve results and will keep people safer and will also help reassure people that their liberty is guaranteed and it can't just be taken away at will by a judge even when you haven't had your trial yet. All right, and just like that, we are up against the clock here. Again, Jason Reed, thank you so much. Where can people follow you on social media? Where can they find your writing? Uh, my handle is at jasonreed624 on Twitter and everywhere else. Um, and I encourage you to check out Young Voices more broadly as well. We have so many great writers and commentators producing great content all the time. And we are back on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Leslie Corbley back to the show. She is a contributor to Young Voices as well as a policy analyst at Libertas Institute, focusing on issues of privacy and individual rights. Leslie, great to see you again. Thank you. Thanks for having me on again. So I'm looking at an article that you have uh, written about how the public needs protection from public safety agencies. And I know that's going to strike some people as counterintuitive, but I'm going to ask you, could you unpack that for us? Sure. So... In Utah in particular, we've we've had a couple of scandals, if you will, related to the government agencies use various government agencies use of data. Um, so back in 2019, there was an issue with a government contract with a company called Banjo. And they really aggregated a lot of information on the Internet, pulled it from sites like social media, other places that people publish public information. And that was designed, they sort of build it as um, a sort of real-time tracking crime so that you could help law enforcement to uh, better identify criminals Um in sort of real time. That contract luckily was abandoned by the state of Utah, but unfortunately not due to the tactics. It was abandoned due to um, the affiliation of the owner of the company that came out. He had some neo-Nazi ties, which is obviously not something you would have any interest in. Um, You know, that's a good thing. We're very glad that 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 relationship was nixed. Not really great in my view that this kind of this kind of technology was something that the state was interested in using. So that's, I think, troubling. Um, so good overall that it was sort of abandoned. The reasons for it, to some degree, good, but we prefer to not see um, that appetite for, for using invasive and potentially not necessarily um, – accurate data collection practices. You know, I as I read your article and as you were describing some of the, the ways that all that aggregation of data takes place, 
I was having flashbacks to uh, uh, Minority Report <laughs> with Tom Cruise, the, the, the Philip K. Dick novel about, you know, uh, crime prevention, pre-crime and, and, and being able to track every little detail of every person's life. And while I love technology and I love how it makes my life easier, um, am I justified in feeling just a little bit nervous when, when uh, the state wants to glom onto that technology to, you know, the better to protect me with, so to speak? I think nervous is a little bit of an understatement because, again, it's not just Utah that's wanting to use this kind of um, this kind of information to better. They, again, it's billed as predictive policing is often a phrase used. Oh, we're going to ensure that we're we can fight crime better and, and catch criminals quicker. And again, there's an error rate there with some of these technologies. You're drawing inferences. You're not always drawing accurate inferences. So in some cases, it can lead you kind of down a rabbit hole. Um, doesn't actually <laughs> make make crime. It doesn't actually necessarily solve crime faster. Let's put it that way. That's one way to look at it. And then another way to look at it is that to what extent do we want to be drawing these inferences? Like you said, how troubling is it that we're trying to um, predict crime in real time? You know, that comes with drawbacks, both from a privacy standpoint and also from from a standpoint of what do we want society to look like in the future, right? So technology has, like you said, great uses for for convenience and some and other other factors that we all care about. But do we really want to be using it um, in this capacity? And I think that those are open into questions. I would argue that's a, a, a pretty scary use of technology going down that rabbit hole of you know just all information flowing to the government and allowing them to attempt to solve crime in this what they would argue would be in a effective and quick manner um you know speed sometimes can sacrifice accuracy no, as we all know from just i mean look at your look at journalism the trajectory of just yep. the field over the past 20 years you know um speed does not always uh, track with accuracy. So something you mentioned too that I thought was really intriguing is it's not just digital data. And you gave the example of the Utah Department of Health requiring new parents to fill out a questionnaire before they could submit an application for a birth certificate. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. So that was more on the research side, which is also troubling. So what happened here was the Department of Health uh, had a 100 question survey that women had to fill out before they could be discharged from the hospital or request their child's birth certificate. So like you said, they couldn't fill out that application. So this was troubling on multiple levels. First, you were not really able to go home without filling filling out this form. And then second, your child's identifying documents were kind of being held hostage. Um, before, so you were required to fill out this form. And they were then, the department was then charging a fee to researchers to access this data. Now, this was going on for roughly a decade, and it went through, the form went through various iterations. So they would go and request more information um, or change up the questions that they asked. And these were not related to identifying documents, to be clear. These were things like asking about your use of prenatal vitamins, asking about your use of contraceptives, um, other things that are completely untethered to 
um, the, <laughs> the state's interest in ensuring they have accurate documentation of children, which is, of course, fine. The good news on that front is that the Utah state legislature actually passed a law this past session addressing that and ensuring that the department has to clearly identify the required information versus the information that is entirely voluntary. So that will have to be delineated here, I believe, beginning in the summer. That's good to know. And it's, it's probably, you know, because of the efforts of groups like Libertas Institute that that have, have pushed back on this. And, and it makes me think of I've I've followed the, the U.S. census now pretty closely for about the last uh, roughly 30 years or so. And it seems like the census questions get more and more intrusive as opposed to just a simple enumeration of the people. And as I was reading about, you know, the Department of Health in Utah wanting, you know, to answer these hundred questions or we won't discharge you from the hospital or give you your kid's birth certificate. It made me think, you know. That's that's kind of the same path that the Census Bureau is taking just for research, but it still seems unnecessarily intrusive. It is. And that's the troubling nature. It's not that you can't ask these questions if people are willing to answer them. It's that there was no delineation between what is necessary for the purpose of, you know, the very valid purpose of gathering information about uh, your new child, you know, things like the name of the child, the parents, usually the address, things like that are are pretty typically asked um, so that the state has an accurate record of, of their population. That's valid. Um, what's not is asking about things like, you know, really, really intrusive questions about your use of various substances, whether or not you, your child was conceived through a surrogate, I believe was one of the questions. So these aren't things that have anything to do with, it was, it was quite in depth. It was quite thorough in that regard. Um, And so again, that's clearly for research purposes. And this is not something the population or people should have to be concerned about. So the reason this came to the public eye was because one of these women who's being required to fill out this survey after she's just had a newborn child actually had a phd and so she understood research methods and she's looking at this forum going that's a problem and brought brought it to the media's attention so are are legislative remedies uh, really the best route to go then in order to to rein in some of these uh, potential problem areas They certainly need to be a piece of the puzzle. So legislative remedies must address the collection, retention, and use of individuals' data. That that being the case to ensure that the, again, that the collection, retention, and use is valid, makes sense to the public, does not overreach, does not invade into the privacy of um, individuals in an inappropriate manner, and also to ensure that there's informed consent. So again, if you want to ask these questions, in the case of the survey, that's fine, but people need to clearly understand what is and is not voluntary, so they're able to give that informed consent on the front end, rather than, uh, you know, come to find out this had nothing to do with, with a valid use of, um, of government funds, essentially. I mean, these are taxpayer funds you're using. You shouldn't be um, using that to collect information inappropriately. Essentially, uh, in the in the case of the Department of Health, it was a form of data mining. I mean, it doesn't sound like that, but that's essentially what was happening. These data sets are powerful. Researchers pay to have access to them for a reason. They want to use them um, for various research purposes. 
which is fine as long as you are acquiring the information in an ethical manner. It sounds like uh, we've got about 30 seconds left here, but it sounds like the lesson here is you can't ever let your guard down. It's not that the state is, you know, actively trying to enslave you, but it's always looking for ways to, to cut corners or so it seems. That that really is a lesson. I think the lesson is twofold. First, there's there's likely procedures in place that are troubling in the here and now. And also, it's probably a good idea to very clearly check what is occurring with the data that you're putting out there. Even if it's through a third party, you don't necessarily know where that's going to go in the future. So it's always better to check early and often in regards to how your data is being used. Okay. Once again, we are talking with Leslie Corbley. She is a policy analyst at Libertas Institute and a Young Voices contributor. And we are back on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome contributor Sean Tima back to the show. Sean, uh, I know you've been a Young Voices contributor for some time, but you wear a number of other hats as well. Tell our audience a little bit about yourself and what you do. Yeah, Brian. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, Currently serving as Chief of Staff here at Young Americans for Liberty. Uh, Happy to be here. Been here about five years now. So, uh, you know, in between writing and and appearing on TV and, you know, shows like yours, I'm out there raising money for YAL and and running the office so that way we can elect 250 Liberty representatives by uh, the end of this year. So big task, but happy to be a part of it. I'll tell you what now, this this is kind of off topic for where we're headed, but um, I think this might be the year you have uh, a bonus crop of liberty-minded candidates, just because it appears that the, the public's mindset has uh, has changed a little bit over the last couple of years. I think a lot of people are ready to embrace liberty at a level they haven't been for some time, for what it's worth. Yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, we're anticipating a pretty big uh, wave of, of center-right candidates, but my personal opinion, speaking as an individual, it's important that those people will actually be hardcore and for liberty and not just people who want to be part of the establishment and, and have a cushy job and you know secretly vote yes on every tax increase or budget increase. Uh, you got to have people who actually stand up for the principles. I know one of the big talking points that, uh, at least from from the Democratic side of the aisle, has been we're gonna we're gonna cancel student debt. You know, we're going to make sure the student loans that uh, people are having trouble paying, we're going to go ahead and forgive those. And on the on the one hand, it sounds very magnanimous until you realize, well, they're actually doing it though with other people's money. I'm looking at an article you wrote for spectator.org. Cancel the higher education cartel, not student debt. Sean, I like your take. Go ahead and, and walk us through what your thinking is here. Absolutely. Well, You're absolutely right. You've got the progressives on the Democratic side, these candidates who are saying cancel student debt. It's no surprise that this should be what their rallying cry is, because you look at the poll numbers of Biden and Democrats at large, and the poll numbers are lower, uh, lower amount of support from young people than in the last 20, 25 years. Right. Their support is slipping. And there's many reasons why that's the case. But now they're trying to appeal to younger voters by saying, hey, we're going to tease this idea of debt cancellation. But you're absolutely right. I mean, you're going to take that money from other people. There's, there is a million and a half arguments as to why we should not cancel student debt, right? At its core, my personal take is it's wrong to rob from Peter to pay Paul, whether it's student debt or the Wall Street bailouts or anything. Um, but what this whole conversation misses when the Democrats are talking is canceling student debt 
will do nothing to actually dismantle the higher education cartel, which is this alliance of you know the banks, Sally May, university administrators, and the federal government, who through their own mismanagement have increased the price of college to a point where the only way <laughs> that you can afford it is taking out a massive amount of loans. So you can cancel the student debt, you can wave your magic wand, that is not going to change the, the fact Stanford costs 75 grand to attend, and that's a problem. Yeah, I've heard a lot of talk of collusion over the last few years, mainly collusion with the Russians. But for actual collusion, I think the most clear-cut case I can think of is the collusion between banks and universities and colleges to, to load students down with backbreaking amounts of debt. And, and as, as I understand it, this is not just any kind of debt. Student loan debt um, is, is not a forgivable kind of debt. Is that correct? Yeah, it's notoriously hard to declare bankruptcy on your student loan debt. And there are many testimonies out there from people who have tried that, gone through the system, and they just can't do it. And so, again, there are things that the government can do. We can demand of, of the American culture and the American people to do to reduce the cost of higher education or to at least beat this bad system. You know, one of which is allowing people to declare bankruptcy on their student loan debts. That's going to disincentivize the lenders if they realize, oh, shoot, now I'm going to be on the hook because they declared bankruptcy. Maybe I'm not going to give a kid $100,000 to pursue a uh, underwater basket weaving degree, <laughs> right? There's actual risk they have to uh, consider. You know, you can remove the interest rates on some of these loans. You hear about the people who took out 50 grand in loans. They've been paying it for 20 years, and yet they still owe 40 grand because interest rates keep rising. If there isn't that incentive and that payoff for the people lending, again, if they have to take on more risk, they won't give them out. We can stop telling that everybody that they have to go to college. I mean, it's just not the case. There are some people who are better off in trade school. There are some people who are better off in a program like Praxis, right, which does great work. There are some people who, uh, you know, like the Peter Thiels of the world, they just don't need the college. They can go on without it and, and strike out on their own. Um, but college is not right for everybody. Uh, but above all, I think the, the main solution has got to be stopping these student loan debts right at the source, or rather stopping the federal guaranteed student loans right at the source. Because until you do that, you're going to have them continue to go out. You're going to have the system propped up where people are going to have mountains of debt and people making money off that. And that allows colleges to raise tuition. Sean, you list four very viable alternatives to canceling student debt. Do you want to walk us through each one of those? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I might have jumped the gun and just started to talk about them a little bit, but there's at least a couple I didn't get to, right? Um, so you've got educational savings accounts, right? I mean, you're familiar with these through school choice programs for uh, you know pre-secondary education, not higher education. But the idea that if I open up this fund for my child, right, or uh, you know as an individual, I can invest in it. I can make money off of that through playing the markets, and I can save money to go to college and it's tax-free when you actually pay for the college. The problem with these savings accounts is you've got barriers on them, right? For some of the accounts, you're not allowed to invest in certain money markets. You're not really allowed to pick individual stocks or ETFs. So you are choosing between a government-conscripted uh, set of options for, for how you can make money. And as we know, the government doesn't do well at making uh, <laughs> smart business decisions. So bad system. You've got another set of educational savings accounts where you're only allowed to put in $2,000 a year. I mean, talk about you know a penny in the bucket uh, when you're looking at the cost of college as a whole, these $70,000 tuition 
fees. So we need to unleash those savings accounts. Again, we need to stop telling kids that the only way path to success is going to college. There's a million other paths out there. You know, get the bankruptcy courts back in order and let these lenders take on the responsibility. Uh, and again, and Dr. Rashad Ritchie, when I was on his program uh, with the Young Turks, he didn't like it when I said we need to abolish federal student loans. But if there is such a huge source of the problem, you've got to strike that problem right at the source. Otherwise, you know, you're just uh, you're playing, you know, pennies on the dollar for the impact that you can make. Okay, and I'm going to play devil's advocate just here for a moment, just because I I want to explore the possibility. If the federal government wasn't the one um, putting together or making possible these student loans, if the need was really there, I mean, would there not be um, private or philanthropic organizations that would work to make sure that students who were serious about going to school had the resources necessary? What's your take? I think it's entirely possible. You've already got private loan companies out there that are facilitating loans. Uh, the difference is they don't have this uh, federal guarantee, right? So they're they're you know facing a uh, monopoly competitor almost. And you've got philanthropists out there who are stepping up. Wiley College in Texas, in East Texas, it's an HBCU. At their graduation commencement, it was announced that a generous donor had covered the entirety of outstanding payments for that graduating class. Wow. So this is possible, right? Especially if you remove this federal guarantee, you're going to see rallying cries from from philanthropists, from people who see, hey, we got to step up and through private means help solve this problem. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, Elon is going to write a $900 billion check in Claiborne <laughs> student loans. But again, you cut out the federal guaranteed student loans, you start to see a reduction in the price of college just by how the market is adjusting. You will see private entities step up to help people because there's still a viable market for people to go to college. There's still good people out there. Um, so it's not like you cut the federal student loans and all of a sudden everyone is uh, undereducated and, and poor. It's just not the case. It is the only way we are going to truly fix the system. It seems like it would also make it much easier under those circumstances to differentiate between those whose loans would be very high risk versus those who would be a much safer bet. In other words, the ones who are more serious about school and not just you know, taking out student loans to go to school because that's what you do. You go to school, you know, to find themselves. And as, as you mentioned earlier, um, I think we're, we're really underserved sometimes in terms of the, the trades. It's a perfectly um, respectable way to make a living. And more importantly, it's needed. When, when I've got a wiring problem, when I've got a plumbing problem, I need those tradesmen and tradeswomen um, who have the skills to fix it. Absolutely. And those tradesmen and tradeswomen are going to make the same or more money than your average liberal arts degree with less debt. You know, one alternative I didn't talk about in the op-ed, uh, but I think is a good solution as well from a decentralized level, is if you saw universities, and again, you can only do this if you cut the federal student loans, in my opinion, but if you set this expectation that universities will, in fact, you know, assume the risk of some of these degrees. So if you, again, you've got a BA in underwater basket weaving, and that person isn't paying off their degree from the job prospects, you know, then the university's got to be on the hook. That's another way you can look at this. All right. We are talking with Sean Tima. He is chief of staff for Young Americans for Liberty, also a contributor for Young Voices. Sean, where can people follow you on social media? Absolutely. On Twitter, I'm at Liberty Sean. And to give a shout out to uh, Young Americans for Liberty, you can follow us at YA Liberty. 